We all live on campus now. Andrew C. Sullivan, the political commentator, wrote a couple of months back. So this is the perfect time to talk to Scott C. Johnston, the author of Campusland, a novel that deals with the campus craziness. Mr. Johnston also runs The Naked Dollar. He's a finance and tech guy who turned into a novelist. I'm very happy that I got the opportunity to talk to him, particularly since his book has now been opted for Hollywood production. So for the beginning of our conversation, I originally planned to pick out some of uh, kind of the most prominent cases of the uh, advancement of the Vogue Brigades in the last couple of weeks, but it seems uh, it's really hard to catch up. So just in the last couple of days, I found out that apparently The Bachelor is racist, uh, math is racist, we need trigger warnings for uh, The Muppet Show. We uh, can no longer watch old Disney movies because they also need trigger warnings because they might be disturbing or traumatizing for children. So given all that that's currently going on, I had to go back and uh, reading your book, Campus Land. I have to ask, can you tell us a little bit about how you came about writing that book? And if you sometimes feel as if reality is, is overtaking your periodical satirical look at what's going on at U.S. university campuses? Sure. Um, I, I'll tell you how it came about. I, 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 I'm not a, um, a writer by trade at all, and I'd never written any fiction before. Uh, I was, I, so I went to Yale as an undergraduate, and I also taught there as an adjunct um, for a few years, um, but not, not writing or anything. I taught economics. Um, but I went back for a free speech symposium. Uh, it was called the Future of Free Speech. Now, mind you, it wasn't sponsored by Yale. Yale isn't um, uh, into that sort of thing these days, nor any of the, uh, uh, of the um, higher ed universities. Uh, but it was physically on Yale's campus. And 200 students showed up and tried to physically shut the conference down. They showed up with signs and they were chanting and they tried to break in, but were prevented by security. And as I was walking out through this phalanx of angry, even spitting students who, you know, obviously missed irony class that day, they're trying to shut down, a, they're using their speech to try and shut down a conference on free speech. Um, I wondered why no one had written uh, a really good satiric novel using this milieu, this setting, the modern, insane American university. You know, where was Tom Wolfe when you needed him? But you know, Tom Wolfe had actually recently died. So that's where he was. Uh, and he did write a book about colleges called uh, I Am Charlotte Simmons, but it was more like 14 years ago and it wasn't one of his best books and it wasn't about political correctness. Um, so, but I didn't, it didn't occur to me at the time that I might be the person to write that book. Then fast forward to my college reunion and I was holding the door open one evening for an undergraduate and she stopped dead in her tracks and she looked at me and, and wouldn't go through the door and, and said, patriarchy. She accused me of patriarchal behavior for holding the door open for her. And we had this standoff where neither of us would go through the door. Um, and uh, eventually boredom overcame her principles before they overcame mine and she walked through the door. But that it was really that moment where I, I thought, well, hell, the hell with it. I'll, I'll, I'll figure out a way to write a novel. Um, and, uh, and then I set about doing it. So that, that's how it came about. And um, I, I think it turned out to be pretty timely. Oh, and as far as events overtaking it, there were a lot of things as I researched the novel, um, 
and, and a lot of things that happen in the novel. The novel is supposed to be a fun read and supposed to make you laugh. But a lot of things that happen in it are um, based on real life events. Um, and I, I, some of the things I had to tone down from reality because I didn't think anyone would believe them, in an, even in a novel. Uh, for instance, um, the villain in my, in my book is um, the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at Devon University, which is kind of a Yale stand-in. Um, and I was trying to decide how many, how many subordinates to give her, like how big is the diversity department at this fictional Ivy League university. And so I went on the Harvard and Yale websites to find out how many uh, there were in real life, and I could not find out the information. The diversity industry does not believe in transparency. Uh, and uh, so I decided to make it 20, and then later on I revised it to 30, thinking, you know, I have some license to, for satire here. I found out right around when the book came out about a year ago uh, that the actual number of Yale is 150. Now, if I put 150 in the novel, no one would have believed it. They would have said, come on, give us a break. That's ridiculous. So I toned a lot of stuff down, but in many respects, uh, reality has, has blown right past my novel since, since it came out. It's, the culture is moving very quickly. I mean, I would also like to congratulate you, right? Uh, the book Campus Land, and I, I will try for our listeners, I highly recommend this, but I'll try to avoid any spoilers that would take the, the fun out of uh, reading it uh, for themselves. But it was recently optioned by Hollywood, now, did this come as a surprise to you? And, and do you expect the actual development of a movie script, given the, the, the current climate, that this is going to happen in the near future? Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, I, you probably know that the Oscars have changed their rules and you basically can't win an Oscar anymore unless you have a woke um, narrative and, and, and you have a certain percentage of minority actors um, and, and so forth and so on. Um, I think they're... A big studio bought it. I don't think they would have bought it uh, if they didn't want to see it made. Um, as an author, I'm led to believe I'm on the lowest rung of the Hollywood toting, totem pole. So they don't necessarily share a lot with me. Although my understanding is right now they're looking for someone to write a screenplay treatment of it. And they want to make it into a series, sort of a Netflix series, um, which would be ideal, I think, because... Um, Satire is very difficult to put on the big screen, and I would cite uh, Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, the worst movie made of the best book ever. Um, it, it's very difficult to get the tone right, and you need a little time to flesh it out. And there are a lot of characters in Campus Land, and I think a 90-minute you know, movie might be hard to do. But given the breathing room of a seven-part series or something, I think it would be fabulous. So will it actually get made, and will there be actors and actresses courageous enough to accept roles in it? I I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, do you think this is something that we might see just now emerging, and 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 the the movie about your book might would fit right in there? That there is a new kind of conservative landscape in in culture and movie making is emerging, right? We recently had on, on Netflix uh, JD Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, then uh, Ben Shapiro's uh, Daily Wire has producing Run, Hide, Fight, the movie about uh, a school shooting. So it looks as if there is, which of course is also driven, which is fine by some profit interests, but this, that there is a growing 
consumer base for maybe not conservative themed movies per se, but of movies that, that don't give in completely to the, the woke prescriptions and to, to uh, political correctness that, that maybe some studios say, listen, we know that this might give us some blowback, but uh, at the same time, there is like this huge chunk of people out there who would really enjoy such a movie and, and who would watch it because it is politically incorrect. Yes, so I'm of two minds on this. So yes, there'd be demand for it, but it is also the case that lots of American companies now are making, you know, as a company, you're supposed to try and maximize profits within, within the bounds of ethics and the law. And a lot of companies are not doing that anymore. They're actually sacrificing profits for the sake of wokeness so that 12 people on Twitter won't criticize them. So the, you, you see in, across industries, a lot of suboptimal financial decisions being made, like Disney canceling that, um, the, the one woman who was in there, um, the Star Wars. Yeah, Sheena Carano. Right, I mean, that, that, she was very popular uh, and she was making the money. So that was a suboptimal decision, financially speaking. They did it to, you know, virtue signal. So there's a lot of that going on. But on the other hand, you know, my book got published by a big publisher, um, which um, surprised a lot of people. I did not, um, you know, whenever I reached a point in my book where when I was writing it, where I thought, you know, gee, am I going to get in trouble if I say this? I, 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 I went ahead and said it. Um, so my book is anti-woke, um, anti-PC, and and it got published by St. Martin's Press, which is, um, you know, part of Macmillan, which is one of the biggest publishers there is. So there is some hope, I think. And there's starting to, you're, we're starting to see a bit of pushback on, on, on this entire woke revolution. But it, the pushback is in early days. And you've got to be kind of brave if you're pushing back because the left still owns social media. And that's the tool that they use to cancel people. I mean, do you think that, for example, companies like Coca-Cola, right? They recently had this uh, company-wide anti-racism anti training um, where they had like a Robin DiAngelo, uh, Ibrahim X. Candy style training for its, its employees to be less white and to be kind of be more aware of their privilege and all these kind of things, which of course are in itself incredibly racist. But, but do you think that these companies do it because they really believe in it or that they say, the likelihood of getting, for example, uh, boycotted by, by a liberal group or by liberals is much higher than getting boycotted by conservatives, right? The likelihood of if you don't do the anti-racism training, that you get a boycott from the left is higher than people now saying on the, on the right side of the aisle that they say, well, you did this and therefore I'm no longer going to buy your products. Because it seems that there was an interesting study out of, of Harvard Business School, right, that kind of looked at how do people react to companies? And if a company was neutral, people were fine with it. If a company was, was liberal, people were fine with it. But if it turned out that the company was, was conservative, right, their, their popularity dropped, their fictional company, their popularity dropped by 30%. So for companies, it's like a win-win situation for the, at least the last couple of years, right? Conservatives didn't care, liberals did care. So they pandered to the side that, that was more willing to, uh, to, to push back or to push into their ideological direction. And do you think that that might change, right? That conservatives, if you forgive me the expression, are becoming more competitive, right? I wouldn't say that they grow balls, but they become more competitive and, and, and also say, listen, if you kind of boycott things we like, if you, as you correctly pointed out, that if you push actors um, off the air that we like, if you push uh, uh, you know, radio shows, uh, 
YouTube celebrities kind of that are popular in the right of the air that we're going to kind of attempt to do the same, uh, the same to you? I don't know. Well, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and, and if anyone's interested, I also write a blog called The Naked Dollar. And the most recent piece that I wrote was an expose of um, uh, the diversity industry. And it's become an industry. Um, it, it's, it has conferences and um, highly paid consultants. And, and, uh, and so does a company like, let's talk about Coca-Cola. Does a company like Coca-Cola actually believe in this nonsense? Uh, the answer is, and I'm not inside Coca-Cola, but I, I think I, I know what's going on. There are probably a couple of key people inside the organization, probably on the board and definitely in human resources. Human resources has become utterly corrupt. Um, and if you wonder where social justice warriors go after they graduate, they go into human resource departments. Um, so a couple of key players probably passionately believe this. And they believe that Coke must signal its virtue. And they probably pushed very hard internally for it. And uh, the people inside, the other people who didn't necessarily buy in, were all afraid to raise their hands and say, wait a minute, this is nonsense. Because that, then they'd risk getting canceled. And getting canceled is a very, very real thing. It's very costly to people. Um, I, the head of one of the uh, one of our soccer uh, franchises uh, retweet or liked a tweet that said all lives matter rather than black lives matter. Just liked it. He didn't write the tweet. He lost his job. So this this really happens. So uh, as long as that's the environment, a lot of people are going to be afraid to to stand up and say anything. Um, is this is this starting to happen in Europe? Yes, right. Actually, I would I would even say that in some instances, it probably started here before it, it started in the United States, particularly in Great Britain. You had many of these cases. Um, there was one very a case that got more public attention where somebody was arrested for uh, for disturbing the public peace because they put a Union Jack into the window and uh, and some people perceived the British flag uh, as being as being offensive. So this is happening here as well. And we had a, a couple of, in Germany, there, were, there was one person who kind of put together a dossier about a politician who, who happened to be of diverse background, but who was blatantly lying on, on his CV. And the next thing that happened was that the police stood uh, at the, the person who put together the, the dossier at his door and they confiscated his computer, his cell phone, all these kind of things. In the end, nothing came of it, but it's a chilling effect, right? It, it's, a, it's not, this is, I think, what's very often underestimated, exactly what you pointed out. In the worst case, it leads to people uh, losing their jobs, but very often it's, it's a social ostracization. It's, uh, uh, you have to go to courts. It's kind of the, the process becomes the punishment, right? You drag somebody through court for three years, they have to pay six-figure sums for their lawyers, and even if they win in the end, you say, well, the system worked. Yeah, but the person's life is probably still ruined. Absolutely. Um, most bad ideas um, in, in the world come from academia. And um, uh, it'll start with some professor somewhere uh, who has an idea and he writes a white paper and maybe creates a course around it. And then he presents the white paper at a regional conference. And then it sort of expands from there and then it's taught by more people. And then some of the people, the undergraduates who, who, who buy into this nonsense graduate and then they go to the human resource departments. of the, you know, So this is how these things metastasize. They're like brain or intellectual viruses. 
Um, and unfortunately, social media, and with social media, I have a technology background also, um, and I thought social media was a wonderful force for good when it first sort of came on the scene, but now it's quite the opposite. So social media has accelerated this process and progressives dominate so social media and, and conservatives can you know get canceled very easily on social media. I, I lost my Twitter account for 12 hours because I retweeted a story from the New York Post about Hunter Biden, which was 100% factual. Yeah. But I was shut out of Twitter for, I think, retweeting hacked material or something. So um, social media is the great accelerant of, um, of wokeism. And we are, um, it, it's going to get worse before it gets better. There are people starting to fight back. You know, there's liberals like Barry Weiss. And I actually, Naomi Wolf, of all people, who's a classmate of mine and a big feminist. She's pushing back. So it's starting to, you're starting to see it a bit, but these are very brave people um, and um, there aren't enough of them yet. I guess it's a little bit like trying to turn around an oil tank, right? That even, even if the movement starts, it still takes a long, uh, a long time until the, the movement is completed. A good analogy, I would say. I want to go back a little bit, kind of to lighten the mood a little bit, to go uh, back to back to go back to your to your book Campus Land, because what I really enjoyed about it, it was it was first published in 2019, and it's a it's a satirical yet hilarious story about about how wokeness and political correctness engulf an, an innocent and I would say somewhat naive professor of of English literature. But what I really like about the book is that it seems to me that that it's not. There is sympathy for almost all the characters in it. So it's it's I would recommend it even to somebody who would perceive themselves to be more kind of on the woke side, if, if you want. So it's not it's not what I enjoyed very much. It's not in your face. I think very often with, with these kinds of stories and books, you kind of see the formula after the, the, the first two chapters and you can predict exactly what's going to happen in the following chapters. And this is not. Uh, how I experienced your book that made it really enjoyable. The characters really come to nice, come to, to life in a very sympathetic uh, way. So I'm just really curious, and again, without giving away too much, because I don't want to prevent anybody from reading it for themselves, but while writing the book, who kind of was your favorite character in it? If, if, if you had someone or someone you kind of felt felt uh, closest to, because it's, it's, it doesn't really have, it, it kind of has, as you mentioned before, a villain, but it doesn't really have a, a hero or a protagonist in the classical sense. Uh, they were all really fun to write, uh, except maybe the, the uh, I, you're right, there's, I thought the protagonist was the professor that you mentioned. My editor thought it was Lulu, who's the sort of uh, conniving socialite. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a large cast of characters. Um, the hardest one to write and the least fun one to write was this, uh, the professor, because he was a sort of naive straight man. And, and for, I discovered that was much harder to write than the characters who were much more, um, um, sort of out there and, um, you know, stronger characters, if you will. Lulu is my favorite character because, um, she so she's a, um, a a socialite wannabe from New York City uh, who wants her picture in you know the glossy publications at parties and so forth. She she wants to be an it girl. Um, this is very much of a New York subspecies, and uh, she comes from a moneyed background, um, and 
she views going to Dalton and think of Dalton again as a Yale stand in as sort of a dreary impediment to her ambitions. But her father really wanted her to go and she was smart enough to get in. And she wants to be back in New York, you know, working on her brand and becoming a, a an Instagram influencer and so forth. Um, and she's an awful person um, who who doesn't have morals and ethics. But I love her because she learns how to take she quickly learns the landscape at Devon and learns how to take advantage of people who are much worse than she is. So for that reason, I really think she's fun and, and, and a, a wonderful character. Um, I, whenever I ask people, or if I'm addressing a group of people about campus land, I always ask about Lulu because people have very strong reactions to her. Other people, I just have utter contempt for. Her. Um, so it's kind of fun to see that a, a, a character can draw out such varied impressions from people. I mean, she's, she struck me as, I uh, like your description, but when reading the book, she struck me kind of as the, 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 the almost the most honest character in, in the book, right? It was the one character where the, the motives were very clear and they seemed to be most straightforward. And what I particularly also enjoyed it about it was that we have now plenty of, of evidence also from, from social psychology, from, from, from studies in that area that say that would you describe it a little bit kind of also about her role, particularly her as being a female character, is that there is a lot of evidence for this, right? That, that for example, social media plays a completely different role, sometimes also, of course, a more, uh, a more destructive role in the life of girls than it does in the life of, of boys. And I think you also nicely contra contrast this in the way you describe uh, the fraternities and the members of the, of the fraternities. Oh, so, but, so my, I'll interject my, my other uh, character that I gave a loving treatment to was called the mound who was um, <laughs> a fraternity brother. And, uh, you know, I was in a, the, the description of the fraternity in there was very much, uh, very close to my own experience. Um, it being in a fraternity, I was in sort of Yale's animal house. Um, the mound, the greatest story about the mound. And, and I, I wish I was creative enough to have come up with this on my own, but the wonderful thing about this story is that it actually happened. So, you don't the mound, say. The mound one day goes to, he has, he has a, a paper he's got to write for art history. And he takes art history because he hears it's an easy course. And so the, 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 the assignment is to go to the Yale Art, the Devon Art Gallery, and pick out an artist who's well represented and write a paper about the evolution of that artist's career. So he goes and he examines all the little cards next to all the paintings. And he finds that there's one artist who's very, very well represented uh, at the art gallery. So he writes a long uh, not a long paper, but he writes a paper about this artist's really long career and the many styles he painted in, and the artist's name was Circa. <laughs> so that actually, one of my fraternity brothers actually did that. It, the the uh, story in the book is precisely as it happened, um, and um, it, it, it almost sounds like an urban legend story, but it's, it's a true story. I mean, what does that tell us about higher education? I mean, is, is, isn't that, doesn't it show that really at some point, whether it's Yale or, I mean, I, I got my, my advanced degree at the University of Kentucky, but at, at some point it's, it's kind of a credential industry that you, you want to get the credentials, you want, you, you want to kind of you know, slap it on the wall or kind of signal to your potential employer that I went to this or that Ivy League, but that the actual 
you know, the high and mighty, what also Ephraim, the main character in the book, right? This, this, this high ideals of education and to imbue uh, the, the value of, of literature and how it can help people to mature morally and intellectually, that this might have been the case, the case in the past, but that now it's, it's really a, a, like they are diploma mills and they're, you know, cheaper diploma mills and more expensive diploma mills. But at some point, it seems that at, at least for some, that is what it has become. Oh, if you are um, majoring in something that's outside of the STEM areas, the sciences and, and math areas uh, at Ivy League schools, um, your education right today is probably crap. Um, and I wish that weren't true, but they've been utterly uh, bastardized by woke ideology. ideology but also, um, they've just gotten easier. Um, there, there was a study I saw where uh, students today do something like less than half the homework that they did, you know, a generation or two ago. It's just easier, um, which is uh, unfortunate. But the, the follow up on that person who wrote the paper on Circa, just to show you life's not straightforward. He graduated number one in his Navy SEAL class after he graduated. Um, from Yale. And then he went on later in life to found a uh, prominent private school down in the, um, down in the Bahamas. Um, so he, um, he rose above <laughs> his, his rather modest academic beginnings. It shows, right, that maybe the, the, it's, it's another thing, right, that has been out and discussed a lot that, that due to the way society structures, that particularly men, right, that we we simply mature at later times, so that, that maybe we start university and college too soon, and that we are mentally not there yet to to have the kind of 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 mindset that would be necessary, particularly as you said, right, maybe for fields outside of STEM. Um, I think so. Oh, I think the entire university uh, model has to be reinvented at this point, and it is being reinvented. Um, and I think a lot of um, particularly smaller liberal arts colleges are going to go bankrupt in the next 10 years. But there's a somewhat of a more provocative question where I'm just would be very curious to hear your, your take on. Is it possible, and I say this with all carefulness, but that it's also an element of compensation, right? As you said, right, you have the STEM fields and, and, and the medical fields, right? Where, where people who graduate in these fields they make very clear contributions, if you write. A surgeon saves lives. An architect builds something. Hopefully, that's that's then really there. But particularly the humanities and the social sciences, it's kind of unless you are kind of the best philosopher, you or, or the, the the you know the the, the really writing influential books after you did literature, it's very hard to leave a mark, but, but political correctness, the ideology of wokeness, right? This, the, the idea that, that it's the humanities, the social sciences that can lead the fight against whether we talk about systemic racism or injustice in society, that it, it brings value or, or at least a feeling of, of making a contribution that goes beyond, right? Maybe what people in the STEM uh, in the STEM field uh, are achieving, that it's it's a compensation for what they cannot reach in other areas is by the contributions, or at least the imagined contributions to the betterment and advancement of society. Well, there are too many of these people, right? There, there, you have all these people getting degrees in social studies, and and they all lots of them want to become professors, lots of them do, and then they have to write papers, uh, white papers. And they increasingly write them on just absurd and silly things. Uh, and what the industry is rewarding now is, is a woke aspect to those papers. So you get things like 
a feminist perspective on climate change. You know, that, that, that's a real paper somebody wrote. Um, and climate change apparently is biased against women. Um, and I'm sure someone else has written a paper about how climate change is biased against uh, black people. Um, so this is a kind of nonsense and, and utter intellectual rot that gets produced when there are just too many people doing the, pursuing these fundamentally unpro unproductive professions. Um, and I get, by the way, I get the allure to become a professor. You know, as I said, I was an adjunct for a few years. And it's a very, very protective, cozy bubble to be in the world of academia. And, and I wrote Campus Land from that perspective because my protagonist, the English professor, desperately wants to stay in the cozy bubble. And, and the sort of setup to the novel is um, that he's, he is up for tenure that year. The book takes place over one academic year. Um, and so we sense right away that's going to be one of the big conflicts of the book. Does he, does he get tenure or not? Um, so anyway, it, it's, a, it's a seductive world and a fundamentally unproductive, counterproductive one for society, I think. One, one kind of final question or one of many final questions regarding the book. Um, when I, and I don't want to give away the ending, so, so this is something for our listeners to find out on their own, but given how the climate currently is and how things are, do you think that the story, if it would have happened in real life, would have turned out as it did in the novel or that it probably would have had a, let's say, much darker ending for the, for the protagonist? Oh, gosh. Um, probably a darker ending for the protagonist, um, I think. I, I, I didn't want it. The book is supposed to be fun to read and supposed to make you laugh. And so I couldn't really have a completely dark ending. <laughs> um, but did you think about it? Because that's when I, it came to there, as I said, I don't want to give it away, but there was almost, uh, apart from, and it's, I can say this again, it's a really fun read. It's, it's, it's very enjoyable to read, but it's, it's, it doesn't leave, which is nice, right? Because I think this is a little bit what you also intended to do. It doesn't leave, a, a, there, there is no, no, no painful aftertaste in the sense of that, that, it, that, it, that it ends tragically, or as I said, I don't want to give away the ending, but it, it almost, like it, it's almost too good to be true. Right? It's it's too, it's almost too good to be true how 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 it it, it all it all turns out. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it's hard to comment without giving away much, but uh, I I I didn't want to write a depressing book. I, I wanted to get across a point. It's very hard to write a book that where you're trying to get across a point without being pedantic and hitting mm. people over the head with with whatever point you're making. So you want to make the point as easy a pill to swallow as possible and maybe even you know uh, swallow it with a little sugar um and and that's i knew going in it was going to be a challenge uh to pull off that balance so um i i, I think i in the end i had to have a light tone to do that and so having the ending be one that was um it doesn't end up perfectly for everybody um as I, as you said, there's a big cast of characters and, um, there is a denouement. Um, but, uh, certainly where my protagonist was concerned, um, I, 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 I couldn't leave him in the trash heap, <laughs> which would have been more realistic to life, I suppose. 
as I said, it's, since it's 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 a fun read, and I was wondering because you mentioned a couple of names before, right? Whether it's Barry Weiss or we have Andrew Sullivan, right? There's a, there's a couple of people who traditionally were were on the left, and and as you mentioned before, right, to seem to gradually speak also out against against the dominance. And I think it's fair to say the sometimes outright totalitarian uh, approaches by by the idea, the ideology of wokeness. But I was wondering if the way that you approach it, right, that humor, that that might be the the, the best way to go about it. Because one thing that, and this was what many criticized before the term woke even existed, when it was all under the umbrella term of political correctness, that these people, by these people meaning those who, who subscribe to that ideology, they don't have a sense of humor, right? It's it's there is there is like this 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 kind of anti-joke, right? That that how do you tell a, a joke to a feminist that the answer is that's not funny, right? It, and this <laughs> is exactly this, this idea that it's it's kind of that if you look at it and also what, what happened in recent days and, and hopefully we'll have a, uh, some time to talk about this as well, like the, the, the math is racist, right? That, 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 that three times three is not necessarily nine. We have kind of to take the social context into account. I mean, it's it, at some level, that's hilarious, right? It's, it's threatening, but it's also hilarious at some point. Well, I thought humor would be a good weapon. So I consider myself to be uh, uh, a culture warrior of sorts. Um, not, I haven't been my whole life, but I've become one. And I thought um, I, I thought the best way to fight was with humor because then, you know, people <clears throat> might uh, laugh along the way, but then take home a couple of, of, of points of understanding with them. And you're absolutely right. One of my big beasts with the left is they're they're utterly humorless. You you comedians will not go to campuses anymore because they'll get in trouble because they there's nothing they can say that won't offend somebody. So it, it's almost as if you have people who are addicted to taking offense and they're addicted to being outraged. So they need something constantly to be outraged about. And and this is why they never declare victory, even when they get what they want. There has to be a new enemy because that's the modus operandi. So the, the left is a revolution. The revolution is a po is the point, right? And you never have a goal that can be attained because you can never end the revolution. There was this, this after the Iranian revolution in 1979, there's this famous quote. I assume it's apocryphal, but supposedly it, it really happened. Where the Ayatollah Khomeini said, there are no jokes in Islam. And it seems to me a little bit that 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 right with woke culture, it's the same. There are there are no jokes in woke culture. And you mentioned comedians. I mean, you see it there as well. I, I sometimes feel if you look at somebody like Stephen Colbert, for example, a, a good comedian, like you know, like Johnny Carson, for example, is is laughter is a reaction you can't really control, right? If somebody makes a joke, even at the risk of it being inappropriate. If you cannot help yourself, but at least you have to chuckle, right? Then I would say the comedian has done the right thing. But but these days, it's looking for applause lines, right? It's kind of it's all it's all prepared applause lines. You have kind of the you have the the, the predetermined groups that they're allowed to make fun of. You can you kind of can predict the jokes, right? It's all, for example, along the lines of that you know everybody to the right of the Republican Party, you know, sleeps with their cousins and has no no teeth. And I assume that maybe was funny a couple of decades ago, but at some point it it's kind of it's as you said before, it's only virtue signaling and. I feel this is going to be the dead of, of at least dominant comedy at the moment. And I, I feel maybe there would be again an open space. I mean, Dave Chappelle seems to have tried to move a little bit into that spot, right? That that it is it is funny, right? The, 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 these, these completely 
you know, stuck up. There are no jokes anymore. People, in, to some extent, they're hilarious. Well, the, the villain of Campus Land is a black woman. And I, a number of people asked me, like, what you, didn't you think I was being racist? And, you know, okay, uh, how, how dare I do that? And my response to that is, if you're telling me there are certain groups of people that I can't make a black person the bad guy uh, or the bad woman in this case, um, I think that's racist, right? I, 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 that, that's not treating people equally at all. Um, and, and in this case, um, given the role that the person plays in the novel, they really had to be black. A little bit to, to go into something that you have also written about in the Wall Street Journal. <clears throat> was what's happening also in the school system in, uh, in the United States. It's not just kind of the university and college system, but it's also, for example, the Dalton School, which one of the, the protagonists and one of the main characters, Lulu, in your, in your book, she goes to the Dalton School in New York, which is a real, a real school. And there was some, let's say, upheaval in recent, in recent months, and you wrote about this in, in the Wall Street Journal. Could you just enlighten us a little bit of what was going on there? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, it's just a coincidence that uh, I ended up getting involved with this Dalton issue. And and one of my main characters, Lulu, went to Dalton in, in my book. But uh, if you get to know Lulu and you know your New York City private school landscape, um, and I, I come from that, um, you know that there's nowhere else she would have gone. Um, so Dalton is a, a very elite private school. It's always been on the more progressive end. Um, in New York City. And um, someone on the inside leaked to me um, and my blog a list of demands written by the faculty. And it was eight pages long. And it's all critical race theory stuff. So if your listeners aren't familiar with critical race theory, they should probably get up, the, up to speed because it is one of these ideas that we were talking about earlier in our conversation that has sort of busted out of the, out of the confines of academia and is now infecting broader society. And critical race theory is the opposite. Think of it as the opposite of Martin Luther King. We, Martin Luther King was all about judging people as individuals and content of their character and not the color of their skin. Critical race theory is the exact opposite. It means to separate us all by skin color, define us by skin color. Skin color is the, the first and last thing to consider about people. Uh, it's incredibly divisive and corrosive and, and gets everybody angry at everybody else. Um, and, and it has taken over um, uh, schools everywhere and, and corporations. I mean, critical race theory is, by the whole Coca -Cola, is, is behind the whole Coca-Cola nonsense. Um, Dalton just happened to, to um, be in a, a particularly egregious example. And you know, people ask me, why did I get involved with it? I started blogging about it. And, and the first blog I wrote immediately went viral um, and was then reported in the New York Post and um, in British newspapers and everywhere. Um, I got involved with it, not because I particularly care about Dalton. I have nothing to do with Dalton, but Dalton is an example of what's going on everywhere and people don't seem to understand it. In the wake of George Floyd and with the, with the distraction of COVID, mm -hmm. the cultural needle has been moved further in, in seven or eight months in the United States than it has in any similar period in our nation's history. And people aren't even realizing quite what's going on. 
and it's dangerous, awful stuff. And I would look, I would encourage anyone to go on my blog, The Naked Dollar, and you can go back to about mid-December when I wrote the first piece on Dalton, and you can sort of follow the thread from there uh, just by going through the blogs. And I describe, for instance, what the word equity means. You hear the word equity a lot now. It doesn't mean equality. Equity means equal results. And to get equal results, basically, you have to uh, knock some people down because um, you can't get you can't elevate everybody up to the highest level. So to get equal results, you have to knock people down. This is basic Marxism. And, and so when you see the word equity, think Marxism. And I, I explained it um, much more cogently than I am now in my blog um, in, in a piece that I wrote about a month ago. Um, but it's all it's all there and easy to find. I do believe that there is that's what I'm sometimes wondering. Uh, is 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 this a for example when we look at something like critical race theory right that's by the way i think that's also important to mention there are plenty of people that that are not like the two of us right uh so white middle-aged men so to say there is john mcwerther there is glenn lowry so there is there's is, there is, uh, thomas soul there is a uh, walter williams or the late walter williams unfortunately so there, there have been plenty of 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 people with you know from the the african-american side and others that, that say that that critical race theory is really a problem. Exactly what you just mentioned, because it's it's a divisive ideology that tries to group people by skin color and and then kind of derive from that skin color the way the government should treat them and treat them differently. But is this is it a vocal minority that cudgels a majority into silence, or is this something that really has you know fifty one percent support, so to speak? within broader academia. This is something I still have a really hard time to, to, to grasp, but I, I don't know what is true. I would, say it's, it's, um, I would say it's split. I mean, this is going on at Princeton right now also. I mean, there, there is a letter written by an, a lot of the faculty uh, asking for the same sorts of things that um, uh, the Dalton faculty is asking for. Um, patently outrageous stuff, patently illegal things, right? You know, giving money certain groups of people because of their skin color and not giving money to other groups of people because they have a different skin color. Patently illegal, but this is you know promoted in critical race theory and part of the whole concept of equity. Um, I, I think the, I think it's probably split. If I had to say, I think it's probably, if you got an honest answer out of all these professors, um, I'd say half totally agree with it and half are scared of it and um, think it's awful, but a significant portion of that half is scared to say anything. And will even go as far as signing these letters in agreement uh, because they're afraid they'll be run out of their jobs. Um, you know, it's happening to one guy right now uh, at Princeton, one of the professors there, uh, same as Katz, I believe, um, who ironically and coincidentally went to Dalton. Um, so he he's speaking up about it, and they're trying to they're trying to run him right out of Princeton. Um, so we have an environment where people it's the opposite of free inquiry and debate, which which universities are supposed to success, uh, excel at, and it's really disturbing stuff, honestly. Do you believe that the the kind of vote coalition? can hold together in itself. I think the new term that is very often used is that the BIPOC, right, or, or, or BIPOC. I'm never entirely sure how to, to pronounce it, but I also know the native English speaker, so I have that I have that excuse. But this, it's like Black, Indigenous, 
uh, and people of color. But if if you look at what's happening in certain areas, one example is Asian American, right? I mean, there's pretty good evidence by now that when it comes to to admissions to elite schools, elite universities, there is discrimination against Asian Americans. Um, then you have you know, women would be the next thing, right? I think lots of the movement also now from, from the new uh, administration under Joe Biden, I mean, a lot of this is, is basically the abolition of women's sports, right? This idea that a man who or a biological male who identifies as a woman, right, should also have the right to participate in women's sports. And again, the examples we have is um, if you had, you know, your body exposed to testosterone for most of your young adult life, you have a significant advantage, which in the United States, of course, important for our listeners to know. This means um, to, to be on top in sports in high school means scholarships, means uh, the, uh, an ability to go to prestigious universities. So all these groups, Asian Americans, women, transgender, right, that are all, all be part of the Vogue coalition. I mean, if you, if you dig a little deeper, it turns out not all of them are, are particularly fond of each other. Oh, well, so you're coming back to campus land now. Yes. Um, and one, it's one, one of, of my favorite scenes. <laughs> I, I had so much fun writing this. I know it's the scene you're talking about, and I had so much fun writing that. And, and I realized when you have an environment where um, it's 100% dominated by the left, you're going to have factions, right? Because there's spoils to be had, you know, especially in a big university like uh, Yale or Harvard, where there's so much money around, or there's a lot at stake. And so these leftist groups will naturally splinter. And what you've seen over the years is sort of greater and greater specialization. And you, you know, there was a gay pride movement and gay split into LGBT, and then it was LGBT IAQ. And then now it's, it, you almost need to know the alphabet sing the alphabet song to, to go through the letters. Um, there are now uh, over 70 genders. Um, when I, I, I had some fun with that in Campus Land too. Um, and when I wrote Campus Land, there were only 51 or two genders, I think. And now they're in the 70s. Um, so you have this uh, fracturing on the left and, and their interests aren't necessarily aligned. In particular, Asians are kind of getting the shaft here. And if you also look at the Dalton demands and the Princeton demands, it's all about blacks, really. In fact, blacks now, uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and even the Wall Street Journal, except on the editorial page, they're capitalizing black. But the, the rest of us have to suffer the indignity of lowercase. Um, so the, the part of the, the movement and reparations is another example. They're throwing the other minorities kind of under the bus. And the Asians have woken up first and the Asians are pushing back. Um, but pretty soon, you know, the feminists are gonna push, right? They're starting to push back a bit on, on dudes competing with them because that's what's happening with the trans movement. Um, it, it is so hard to keep up with because it's moving so quickly. And, um, and we now have an administration in Washington that is catering to the whims of those who want to move it uh, really far and fast. Um, so this will all devolve into a big uh, uh, intramural messy fight. Um, 
And perhaps at that point, the best thing to do is to step aside and let them all go at each other. It's like like in in the in the in the most recent Godzilla movie, right? So let them let them fight and kind of hope that it's <laughs> it's gonna gonna turn out. I mean, there's just because I don't want to keep you for too long. But as as a final question, um, to to also look at what this means politically. There has, and this is, of course, currently still a topic that's full of, of landmines. But wasn't this also a reason? This is also in Europe, I had discussions here in Austria with, with people that say, oh, no, it's the myth of cancel culture and, and the myth of political correctness, right? This is just something that the right makes up to kind of excuse their, their abhorrent behavior. But if we look at the last four years in, in American politics, and, and particularly in 2016, also the election of Donald Trump, um, wasn't this, at least to some extent, also a, a repudiation? And, and again, we all know how 2020 ended. And of course, again, none of this makes, makes the events of, of January 6th uh, uh, less, less uh, evil and less, and less tragic. But I think very often we don't see the forest for the trees. And there was such a focus on the person of Donald Trump that very often it seems that we overlooked why people voted for him. And I think one motivation was, it was, a, if you will, a middle finger to this, to this kind of, of, of wokeness, political correctness, this idea that there's only a certain group that can speak freely. And what I found so interesting in 2020s, it's still small, but you saw these shifts happening also in the Latino community, in the black community, in the Muslim community, in the Asian American community, like more of them voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. And as a final point here, the immediate reaction was, right? One was by, by Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times to say, well, Cubans are not really Latinos. They're not really Hispanic. They're actually white. And, and the next group said, well, Jews are not, they, they are actually also, also white. And, and Asian Americans, well, they're actually also white. So it's, I mean, this is going to backfire at some point because there is, there is, there is no reason for these groups to ever go back to a party that, that, that not only the first looks at them only in racial categories. And if they don't behave the way they're supposed to, which mostly means vote, vote, uh, vote, uh, vote uh, on the left, they get pushed into a completely different racial group. All of a sudden, the Cuban is actually white, which, which I guess comes as a surprise to many Cuban Americans. Well, the Dalton demands, the Princeton demands, and woke culture demands in general, they want to create a permanently oppressed class or classes. And uh, it's cultural Marxism. And the difference between cultural Marxism and traditional Marxism is the oppressed, um, the oppressed in uh, traditional Marxism were economic classes, and the oppressed in cultural Marxism are classes of skin color, um, or in some cases, uh, gender. Um, so what they want to do is take black people, for instance, and make them a permanently oppressed victim class. And uh, if I'm a black person, and I'm not, but I'm going to hypothesize here or imagine I might be, I'd be really annoyed by that. I don't want to be your victim. And Walter Williams, who you mentioned earlier, had a great quote. He said, I'm glad I got educated before white people decided to care. Um, and I, I thought that was a great quote because, you know, the, the whole idea of the sort of um, the savior white people coming to, you know, help you poor black people. If, if, I'm, if I'm a black person, I'm kind of offended by that. And, and I want to make it on my own. And I want you to remove traditional obstacles that there have been uh, for me to make it. but I don't want your 
you're patronizing wokeness either. Um, so I agree. I think the last election, um, the election of Trump was, a, you're right, a big middle finger, mostly from um, the flyover country. And um, you know, there's, a, there's a huge realignment that's happening. And, and the working class have all become Republicans, interestingly. Um, and the coastal elites, who traditionally were thought of as sort of country club Republicans, they've all become Democrats. Been a complete reversal. Uh, say what you want about Trump, but he is a seminal historic figure that um, has that caused uh, a tremendous amount of change uh, in America um, and, and an immense political realignment. Isn't that and that's really my last question? But what you mentioned before, I think it fits so nicely into into this topic because we started the conversation a little bit talking also about the Marxist roots of 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 wokeness as as an ideology. But this fits so nicely because originally, if you want the the object of affection uh, of the left was the working class, and it turned out that just as as it's I think with many minorities that. The working class was not really what those who wanted to act on their behalf believed they are, right? Again, you had a, a rather yeah, educated, economically independent or, or upper scale uh, um, intellectual class that decided they will now speak for the working class, right? They, they will represent the interests of the working class. And it turned out that whether it was the world revolution or other things, the working class really didn't have that in, that much of an interest in it. So they then moved on. We had the same, and this is something that also happens in Europe, is that the working class, this is what I meant initially when I said that, that Europe in some respects kind of was ahead in a good or a bad way of the US, that the working class has already turned to the right here because they, they, want, they were no longer of interest to the, uh, um, particularly to the, to the left elites. And they moved now on in Europe, it's particularly uh, minorities with with uh, with a Muslim background and and migration from from those areas, whereas in in the United States it's it's Latinos, uh, the Black community, and other groups. But it's very often exactly what you said, and I, I wish that we would talk more often about this. And it's very often well-to-do white elites who present themselves as being the spokesperson for these groups with whom they probably share less in common. Than uh, you know, cross-racial members of the of the working class. Oh well, they have utter contempt for the working class, right? They're smelly Walmart shoppers. That's that's how they view them. Who drive pickup trucks and probably joined the NRA and 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 uh, so they don't even pretend anymore. They the working class used to be what needed to be saved by uh, the the leftist elite, and and if they've now moved on, and uh, you can just sort of substitute. Uh, skin colors and gender for the working class, and you have the new Marxism. And it's really the same playbook with a, with you know uh, just a twist. Um, and and the ultimate goal is centralized control uh, and and globalization. Uh, and and it's so rife with contradictions and messy messy intellectual nonsense that makes no sense whatsoever when you really analyze it. Um, and, and but the there's this enduring appeal uh, about Marx, who who was a nut in the British Library, who and none of this stuff has worked or panned out. In fact, it's killed hundreds of millions of people. But there's this endure, enduring appeal to it because you know it's a uh, it's a shortcut to power for some people. It goes to their heads. Last question. 
Campus Land, uh, when can I look forward to uh, the second volume? So I am working on another book. It's not a sequel. Um, I'm um, instead of I was if Campus Land is about piercing a, the smug bubble of academia, I was casting about for a different smug bubble that I could go after and, and settled on the world of contemporary art. So I'm working on a book that I would describe as the mob meets the world of contemporary art. It looks around and says, why aren't we involved in this? All right, Mr. Johnson, author of Campus Land and The Naked Dollar Block, thank you so much for taking time to talking to us. It was oh, a pleasure. I really, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.